Moses, Moses is about 80 years old uh, at this time in the narrative. And this is the fifth time that he's ascended Mount Sinai. Within just a few days, it would seem. Maybe weeks. Now, we won't raise hands as to who's at the octogenarian level. But there, I know there's a few. Um, some have hit other decade markers recently. Can you imagine ascending the mount that many times? I mean, regardless our age. Now, Moses, Moses this last time, this, this fifth ascent, in chapter 24, where this one began. And, and he was told by the Lord that I'm going to give you a stone copy of my principles, my precepts, uh, the ten words as we would know them. Two copies, not, not like four on one stone and six on another stone, no. Two copies, duplicate. Remember, Israel is being formed as a nation. And God is establishing a rule and a, a government that is ruled by him. It's a a theocracy, not a democracy, not even a monarchy. It's a theocracy. God is to rule and reign his people. This new entity, Israel, who has not been a nation previous, but just known as the Hebrews, the Habirus, hopping around uh, from place to place. Uh, vagrants, uh, immigrants. But now, coming out of Egypt, God's forming them into a particular nation. And, and these copies, in 24.12, the Lord says, Come up to me to the mountain, wait there, that I might give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. The, the very handwriting of God. I had to sign an official document along with s several other uh, people and I'm comparing the handwriting, you know, of how we sign our names. Mine looks terrible. My handwriting is not so good. It's gotten worse because of all the notes having to be taken quickly in academic stuff. And some of you know that. It just gets worse. Can you imagine what the handwriting of God must look like? Well, we don't know. But now in chapter 31, verse 18, uh, the rounding out of this section it says he gave Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony tablets of stone written with the finger of God the finger of God so if you're used to the Cecil B. DeMille version of the Ten Commandments it's like no sooner do they get to the mountain, Moses goes up one time, he gets the, the stone tablets right away and comes down and they've done the golden calf thing, you know, all just within five minutes. And he throws them down. And we're getting a, a greater sense of the drama in this narrative, aren't we? There's a much more going on, much more being revealed, filling in all of the places and gaps. We've come to this section in God's... Uh, Revelation to Moses, where he's talked about the tabernacle. It's simply the word tent. If God's people are going to be in tents, and Lord knows they'll be wandering around for 40 years in the wilderness, 
then he too will dwell in a tent. Right in the midst of his people. He'll be center in his people's midst. In fact, the, the 12 tribes would encamp around the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the place where God's tent is. And, it, and it we're to think of it, yes, a place of worship, but it's, it's truly the house of the Lord. I mean, it's got a living room and it's got a bedroom. It's got a throne room, a chamber, uh, with the cherubim on the Ark of the Testimony where he seats himself and, and rules his people. He has lampstands and bread table and just like every other house, every other tent would be appointed. So we've seen the tabernacle and the, the place of worship and then we went into the priesthood. These are the people that will serve within the tabernacle. So we got the place and the priesthood, and now we come to a section, chapter 30 into 31. It's about the rest of us, the, the people. The place, the priesthood, and now the people. There's all been uh, the tabernacle template, the, the priestly paradigm, and now we'll call this the familial framework or foundation even. What, what are the essentials of this particular family? This family that gathers in their father's house for reunion and for celebration of his great works of redemption. Some of the values, some of the symbols that we might mark for our families are, are distinctive, I suppose. You know, those of us from outside of West Michigan. Uh, I've shared this in different contexts and so, but it, it, it communicates a bit of the value of family uh, within, within West Michigan. When we're coming, I've been, I'm an outsider. I'm from Minnesota. Been been here now 32 years. Still new. <laughs> Reminded of that. And, but for, for our kids, this is home. This is all that they know. Some of you can identify, you know, our family, our, our extended family is like 10, 18 hours away. Um, so we have, we have an interest in small groups, right? I observe that many of, of the West Michigan people, that small groups are neat, they're nice. They don't necessarily feel the same urgency for them because basically you are your small group. I mean, your family is all here. You get together Sunday dinner and all the you know, right family values. And what a wonderful place to be, West Michigan. And sidelight, may the Lord preserve this subculture that we have. The kinds of values, the kinds of things that draw this biblical family together, this tabernacle-inhabiting people, look a little bit different. The outline is, is symbolic. It begins with blood. Blood. Uh, verses 11 to 16 of chapter 30. The Lord said to Moses, take a census of the people and each will give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, and there will be no plague among them when you do number them. Each one who is numbered in the census will give his life, give half a shekel, 
which is about two-fifths of an ounce. Not a lot, but enough for people coming out of slavery. And it's uh, the sanctuary shekel, 20 giras, right? 0.6 grams or a fiftieth of an ounce. And everyone who's numbered, 20 years old and upward, will give the Lord's offering. The rich will not give more and the poor will not give less than this same half shekel. And the Lord gives you this offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for their lives. Twenty years old or more. Some, some people would like to say that's the age of accountability. Those of us with teenagers would really wish that were true, but it's, that's, that's a stretch. But this is adulthood. The adult Males are to be counted. No distinction between rich or poor. A straight tax, you might say. Right? Just cross the board. Everyone's exactly the same. We all come before the Lord of equal standing, regardless of any other position. All in equal need of this ransom, this atonement. That's to be made. Now, God instructed this religious census. He's telling Moses to do it. And a month later, he's going to tell them to do another census. This one's a religious census. This is for the service of the tabernacle. The next one will be for military service. And again, 20 years and up. Again, those of us with 18, 19-year-old young men wish that that were the case. Counting the Lord's people, you notice when we read this paragraph, is risky. God's telling Moses what to do, but he says... He also warns, doesn't he? He says, now count the people. Now, don't be concerned about the plague that normally would come if you start to number the Lord's people. That's shocking, isn't it? You think of uh, another, another narrative later in Israel's history. King David begins to number the people in 2 Samuel 24. And his, his general, who is... A pretty tough guy, um, pretty worldly kind of guy, Joab. But even Joab says, David King, do not count the people. You'll bring a plague upon us. It, that's what happens when you begin to count God's people. And you're like, well, so what? What's the big deal about counting people? I mean, don't we take attendance? We do, but I, to be honest, I haven't really looked at those numbers specifically since 2020. <laughs> what are numbers? Now, that's not to say we can't or shouldn't and that sort of thing. There's a place of stewardship in all of this, but here I think there's a reminder that we are not to put our hope, our confidence of strength and supply in our own ability, in our own immensity. No, it's all of the Lord. It says the priests are dependent upon the Lord for their provision, so the entire nation is dependent on the Lord for his protection. Don't put yourself at risk. Remember the other parable in the New Testament, a little different situation, but the rich man in Luke chapter 12, he begins to enumerate all of his assets, all of his riches and wealth. And I, 
Wow, look at what I've got. I need more barns to hold it all. Sounds like some car collector. He needs, and, and the Lord says, you fool. You fool. I think the warning here is about pride. And the Lord provides, even in this risky business of enumerating God's people, a protection. The Lord says, I will cover the charges. Bring an atonement offering. Just a small amount. Half a shekel. Silver. Um, the silver would be collected. Now, let, let's, I, had, I was interested to do the math. I only got so far. Someone else will have to pull out their device and maybe finish there, there's approximately 603,550 men. We get this later in chapter 38, verse 26. Multiply that by half a shekel, you get 301,775 shekels. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Like, you don't really care, do you? There's 3,000 shekels to a talent. A talent's worth 3,000 shekels. Now, tabernacle. There's 100 talents that are needed for the tabernacle walls, for the sockets that the framework sets in the ground. They need 100 talents for the tabernacle. 96 sockets for the walls and four sockets that hold the veil separating the two halves of the tabernacle. Each socket, I think I got a little addition wrong there. I think it's like 100 per socket. Each, each socket has a redemption value of 6,000 people. So, you know, we got this, this uh, uh, what do we, uh, the awning canopy thing that we put up for 4th of July, right? And we got these, these uh, water container, sand container things that we strap on around the legs so it doesn't blow away, right? That, that's kind of the picture of the socket. It's this heavy thing down at the bottom that, that the, the posts go into, holds it. It's the foundation of the whole thing. Each one of those each one of those sockets, each one of those little heavy silver rocks represents 6,000 people. Isn't that, what, isn't that what the Lord told Moses? He says, they will be a remembrance before me. You, you give the offering. It all comes together. We melt it down, we form it into molds, and we make these little sockets for the foundation of the tabernacle, and we all contributed to it, and each one represents 6,000 of us, and we add them up all the way around, and it, between that and then the board that two sockets hold, that's like 12,000, and, and okay, so for our, our Sunday evening revelation study people, how many, how many of these tribal people are gathered at one point around the throne. Chapter 7, chapter 14, 144,000. 12,000 representing each tribe. It's a picture of the tabernacle 
there in the book of Revelation. I know, I'm going way into footnote stuff. The people gave money. They build the tabernacle. The sockets are comprised of this atonement money that we each, our family household, our 20 years old, old and men, gave, melted together. We are represented there as a memorial before the Lord all the time. All the time, the Lord remembers his people. All the time, his people are in his presence. This isn't just about the temple tax. This is imagery about dwelling with God. Or a similar imagery is what we, we sang before this message. He will hold me fast. We're in the cleft of the rock, our refuge, our shelter, our tent. The silver sockets represented the redemption of all God's people and is the foundation of the sanctuary. Charles Spurgeon put, put it, this application. The foundation of the worship of Israel was redemption. There can be no real worship without first being redemption being bought out of slavery to sin. And, and while we've been focusing in the Old Testament, there, there's a New Testament reality. We too are a redeemed people, an atoned people. But not with silver. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, you were ransomed, redeemed, from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We read this in the New Testament and think Peter is just comparing with the riches of the world. No, he's identifying the people of God as redeemed by the blood of the lamb, not by the temple tax silver of the old covenant. We're people of even greater import in the new covenant provided in the blood of Jesus Christ. To dwell in his presence for all eternity and to begin in that even now. Even now. So blood reminds us that we are a, a ransomed people. The blood of the Lamb. I need to really keep, pick up the pace. Water, verses 17 to 21 there's a bronze basin. Now there's a new piece of furniture added to the outside. The worship requires a place, and so the Lord gave them the blueprints, as it were, the tabernacle. But there's more than just a place and more than just a time. Real worship means personal commitment and personal engagement. And there are some very practical things about it. The water basin of bronze is so that you can wash yourself, your hands, your feet, before you go in to the Lord's house. Think, think of this. Uh, when Moses was in the presence of the Lord at the burning bush, what did he do? Preach at me. Took off his sandals because it's holy ground. When Joshua meets the angel of the Lord in Joshua chapter 5, takes off his sandals because the place he is is holy ground. Now you're going to walk into God's house you better take off your shoes and wash your feet. 
So God provides the basin right there. First thing we do. Now, the, for the priest, they would do this every day before they would enter into the house. Now, they'd been given a bath at the very beginning, their ordination service, which we, we talked about this the last Lord's Day. Their whole body was bathed, but now they just need to come for a daily cleansing. And the wash basin is there for that purpose. They never needed to be, they never needed to take a whole bath again, well, at least not religiously. They had been bathed. They'd been baptized once. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who's over all, in all, through all. Baptized once, but daily washings, daily cleansings. This is remind you of Jesus' teaching of his disciples in the upper room in John's gospel. John chapter 13, he comes uh, washing his disciples' feet. Jesus, who is the, in John's gospel, he's even called the tabernacle of God in John chapter 1. Here's the tabernacle in the midst of his disciples, and he comes to wash their feet. Do you see the imagery? And he gets, he gets to Peter, and Peter says, No, Lord, don't wash my feet. And Jesus says, If you don't wash your feet, you have nothing to do with me. And then Peter says, Then wash me all. Right? We know this. John 13, Peter said, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands, my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, though not every one of you. Judas was in the midst. And on our Monday-Thursday gatherings and services, we, we highlight this. The foot-washing thing is not about humble service. or well, bits of it. But the real picture is that of cleansing, that of the forgiveness of sin. Are you willing to forgive the sin of the person next to you? And humbly wash their feet? The, the washing of feet is a picture of that need for ongoing cleansing. No, we already are the people of God. We, we've been brought into His presence as His people once and for all time. But we get dirty in this life. We need to be washed daily. In fact, John puts it this way in his first letter, the first little epistle. 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Ongoing, present, continuous reality. He goes on to say in verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is for the believer. This is for the disciple who's already been washed and bathed into the priesthood of believers following the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this life we walk and we get dirty and we need daily cleansings, momentary cleansings. Paul would write in Ephesians 5.26 that we are washed with the water through the Word. The Word of God 
pours over us and cleanses us. It, it brings the conviction of the Holy Spirit and say, Todd, uh, that heart attitude wasn't quite right. That thought wasn't right. That action wasn't right. Not holy, not pure. And when the Spirit of God testifies with your spirit, you say, Father, I'm sorry, forgive me. I admit, it's an offense before you. Wash me, cleanse me, make me pure. And Jesus himself says in John 15, 3, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Be cleansed. We're a, a cleansed people. A ransomed people, a cleansed people, an anointed people. Verses 22 to 33. The beautiful formula, liquid myrrh and cinnamon and aromatic cane and cassia and olive oil. Mix it together and you get this Wonderful aromatic oil. The, the blood speaks of the cross of Christ. The water speaks of that same blood as an ongoing cleansing in the life of the child of God. And now this third element, the oil, is this positive anointing and enabling for the service of God. And not just the priest was anointed. You could read, is it Psalm, Psalm 132? It talks about the fellowship of the brotherhood and the, the oil dripping down off Aaron's beard. I mean, anointing wasn't just a, a dab. That's kind of how we will do it when we pray and anoint with oil. Just a nice little dab. But when they anointed, like it poured it on you and it would drip down onto the beard and onto the collar. Try to wash that. Not just the priests, but the utensils, the furniture within, within God's house was anointed. We too, people of the New Testament, after Jesus has come and shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin, we too are an anointed people. 1 John 2.20 You have been anointed by the Holy One. 2 Corinthians 1.20 All the promises of God find their yes in Him. And that is why through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. Amen meaning true. And, and it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. Who has put a seal on us, given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Every child of God who's been washed by the blood of the Lamb and forgiven is restored unto fellowship with the Father and, and is given the Spirit as a seal and a, an anointing of possession, of purpose, dedication unto God Himself. And the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And we cry out, Abba, Father. Oil and then incense, verses 34 to 38, kind of continuing the same theme, but a, another element yet. 
This incense, again, of a special formula. Sweetness, which is delightful to the Lord. I, this is a very subjective thing, isn't it? I've told you about the very expensive Chanel number no. 5 I bought for my wife in Paris and brought home. And she did not ever put it on. She did not like the smell. I mean, just the cap comes off. Ooh. Chanel number no. 5. Is that supposed, that's supposed to mean something, right? I'm just a guy going through Paris. <laughs> it's a very subjective thing. So God, God gives you the formula. God gives Moses the formula. I want it to smell like this. Sweet spices. Stacti. Anika. Galbanum. That sounds sweet, doesn't it? Frankincense, blended by a perfumer. A perfumer. Did you know that you could be a perfumer to the glory of God? I wish I had one in Paris. <laughs> Verses 36 and 37 say that, that it is a, a, a fragrance most holy to you, and holy to the Lord. It shall be for you holy and holy for the Lord. This, this is a picture of how precious you, his child, his son, his daughter, are in his presence. Wafting, emanating, in his presence. How precious you are to him and how he finds delight and satisfaction in you when you come before him. We are told specifically that Jesus is the ultimate incense offering, the fragrance offered up to God in Ephesians 5. <clears throat> Be imitators of God. As beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And because Jesus is that fragrant offering of that perfect love we sang about, that stronger love of which we sung, Jesus is that. And when we become gods, we become more like his son. Be imitators of God as children. Ephesians 5.1. Walk in love. Hmm. Now, positionally, our being, our identity is as a fragrant offering unto the Lord. And with this is an application of worship and specifically our prayers. We've mentioned this earlier. Revelation 5.8. Before the throne of God and the Lamb and these four living creatures 
who cry out, holy, holy, holy. Again, we sang. Even as the cherubim in the presence of the Lord and Isaiah watching in, Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And around the four living creatures are the 24 elders. And they all fall down before the Lamb, each holding a golden harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Your prayers are gathered up and collected as incense in golden bowls before the throne of God. You can, you can waft into the very heavenly throne room of God by intercession. What a lovely intimacy. A fragrance. And boy, you want a little homework? Read Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 to 4, and see how God answers those prayers. Incense, we're a scented people. We have the fragrance of Christ. Well, the Spirit. Chapter 31, we get to the, oh, this is the part we read. Bezalel and Aholiav, they were not anointed with oil like the priests, but they had what it represented the filling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship. The, the details there are very similar to Acts chapter 6, when the church has said, look for people that, look for men that are filled with the Spirit and have wisdom and knowledge and understanding. That's what the diaconate is to be. That's these Guys, Bezalel, Aholiav. No, they don't have the oil running down on the beard and onto the collar, but they have the reality of what it represents, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not only for what we might, we might think of as a spiritual work. It's not just the spiritual gifts that God anoints and fills for use. He takes any and every of your abilities and talents, skills, areas of, of craftsmanship, being makers, and he, he fills you and redirects them and makes them an offering up for his glory. It matters how well you do your work, how well you do your job. It matters. You're doing it as unto the Lord. So master it. As Bezalel and Aholiab, ask every morning or whenever your shift begins that God would fill you with his spirit that you could do the work that he's given you. And that you would do it with grace, strength, here, here is where the craftsmen have the Holy Spirit. They're in the drawings of verse 4. They're in the carvings of verse 5. 
And they're in the carpentry that's done in verse 8. The Holy Spirit is there in, in filling the, the weaver, the smith, the needleworker, the tailor, and the perfumer. Your work matters. Wherever a willing heart commits itself to hear God and to do what God is leading to do, then you can know that you have the filling of the Holy Spirit. Helping, administrating, building are as much a concern for the Holy Spirit as you know, those more significant sign gifts of healing and prophecy and speaking in tongues. In fact, those are not normal, those sign gifts. The normative operations are how we live together as a family. The filling of the Holy Spirit. Oh, how we need this. Desperately, we need this. Curiously, the section does go on and it goes into Sabbath like you, you might think well that's kind of strange how we go through all this you know about the people and then we get Sabbath laws again and again here's West Michigan and the culture and the reality of of the legalistic kind of application that there had been wrongfully and even on the wrong day right I mean Sabbath means the word seven it's the seventh day of the week which means Sunday, the first day of the week, can never ever be the Sabbath. It's not that complicated. But we have the Lord's Day. Our Lord Jesus was risen from the dead on the first day of the week. The Lord's Day, the day of a new creation. The day of a new covenant. Well, Nonetheless, the point here was one of rest. Isn't that curious? They're just given all of this stuff to do. Here's the pattern. Here's the blueprint. Here's the tabernacle template. Here's the priesthood paradigm. Here's the family framework. Rest. That's just like God. He creates Adam on the sixth day, and he says, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion, subdue it. Rest. And this command will come up again just as they begin to actually do the construction of the tabernacle. Rest. We're not good at this. And even if we're lazy and don't work, we're still not good at actually resting. Resting doesn't necessarily mean inactivity. The work, the work even this work, as important as it is, as holy of a place as it is, doesn't mean you circumvent any other regulations, particularly that of rest, remembering the work of the Lord. Don't ever forget the work of the Lord. Before you begin any project, remember the work of the Lord. And this is what he's telling us. The end does not justify the means. Just because the cause is worthy and important, you must not set aside the details of obedience and honor to the Lord and to his word. Well, in their situation, the Sabbath day required a lot of thought and preparation and 
the whole week so that you don't end up creeping into that Sabbath day. Now, the New Testament never directly quotes this, this command of Sabbath. In fact, Colossians 2.16 says, don't judge people in terms of keeping any particular Sabbath or festival. But the Sabbath is part of the order of creation, isn't it? It's in Genesis, way before Moses. Way before there was ever a Hebrew. It's built in the order of creation. The Sabbath, the, the rest principle is to be a sign that this nation belongs to God. They have a different calendar than any other nation. They have a different rhythm to rest and work than any other nation because Yahweh is their king. It's built into their culture. That itself, that separation, that determination to a, a different kind of lifestyle than the rest of the world, that's the principle. It wasn't to be an exercise to restrict you, but it was an exercise of devotion. Be imitators of God. And, and here in the passage, it says that God rested. And God says, because I rested, you will rest. Be like me, God says. We have a rest. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 19, this is written to us, a New Testament people. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight." but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Rest. Rest. Enter into that rest. What is it? Again, it's the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus says to his people, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All your striving to look right, be right, do right, all your striving is making you insane, crazy. Rest. Rest. Come unto me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in spirit, and I will give you rest. Now, we don't keep the Sabbath like they did in the Old Testament. 
We don't do circumcision like they did in the Old Testament. We don't do baptism the way they did in the Old Testament. We don't do Passover the way they did in the Old Testament. But when Jesus established the New Testament, he gave us a new meal, a new baptism, a new circumcision of the heart, and a new day, the day of resurrection. Now, by principle, we in Western civilization and society have a tremendous advantage over the rest of the history of the world up to this point, let alone the rest of the world, even in these days. Our entire calendar is built around rest. Now, the world has idolized it into TGIF. Live for the weekend. But with this, we, we as the people of God who have a better understanding of where it all come from and what it is to rest in the Lord, we not only have this great advantage, but we have a tremendous responsibility to have a different lifestyle than the world around us. Well, Let's go to truth applied. We need to round this out. The, the one true living God has made us to be his people. The Father accepting us, the Son redeeming us, and the Spirit filling us. Do you not see this in the blood and the water and the oil? One God three persons. Mm. The next goes on. The foundation of worship is redemption. Do you belong to the Lord? Have you, have you thrown in your half shekel, so to speak? Have you given yourself to the Lord, to be His, and to be in His presence, precious to Him. Only then can you begin to worship. And, and, and the, the maintenance of worship, the ongoing of worship, is that continuous cleansing through God's forgiveness and the washing of the Word. Do you come to him regularly, daily, moment by moment for cleansing, for the washing of his word? And then it goes on, a couple, two more. God then equips you and empowers you by his Holy Spirit for work and worship. Consider your occupation, your job, your career as something by which you need to be the filling of the Holy Spirit to make it an offering unto the Lord and do good work. And God has given us a rhythm of working for him and waiting on him. We don't wait so well. But he's given us this pattern. Wait for the Lord. 
wait for the Lord. Now, Father, we thank you for this uh, a survey of the section of Scripture. And there's so much in our minds and our hearts. But we're thankful that you've revealed truth to us. And to that we would say, Amen. As it is written, let it be. Father,